Jesus was the ultimate object lesson teacher. He always seemed to use a prop or a compelling story, some form of an illustration, oftentimes and sometimes even, even real life experiences. He would take it and he would apply a kingdom principle or a powerful truth and relay it to his followers. You got to understand that Jesus disciples and those that walked with him, the Bible calls them ignorant and unlearned men. So they needed all the help they could get to understand some of the principles of the kingdom. These were your, you know, average Joe kind of people, simple folk, and really in many ways they were just nobodies, the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Now my guess is that these blue-collar, hard-working men those that followed Jesus in the inner circle of 12 in particular, did not picture themselves as highly influential, powerful leaders of an exponentially growing church body someday. I I don't think that that was their aspiration when they started walking with him. So right from the beginning, Jesus made it his aim to paint a picture for them of what to expect when he would someday be gone. He had to get across to them the type of harvest and revival that should be expected and desired. And so unsurprisingly, Jesus, again, uses a real-world object lesson to illustrate his intentions for the church. He used something that they all knew very well, and that was fishing. You got any fishermen or fisher ladies in the house tonight? You like fishing? I've gone a couple of times. Well, it all went down like this. While walking by the Sea of Galilee one day, Jesus is being pressed upon by the crowds to hear his teaching. And in an effort to create an orderly teaching environment, Jesus approaches a man by the name of Simon. We would know him more commonly as Peter in the New Testament. And he solicits his boat. And so Peter agrees to help him despite having just worked long hours in the overnight shift And his boat becomes perhaps the first floating pulpit for the master teacher. The teaching concludes, and they're floating out there in the water. And then Jesus turns to Peter, who has been attentively sitting beside him in the boat. And he says in Luke chapter 5, verse 4, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draught. Now, as you can imagine, Peter was reluctant at first. After all, he had just spent all night fishing, and we learn from the passage it was with no luck, no fish. And the day was now hot, and the ideal time to catch fish had passed. And so it seemed like a fool's errand, but something within Peter caused him to step out in faith and launch out into deep waters. Logic told him to head back to the shore, but nevertheless... At the word of Jesus, Peter went out and he let down the net. And nobody could have expected what happened next. Verse 6 tells us, And when they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes, and their net broke. He, he wasn't prepared for what just happened. His net starts breaking, and so he, he, along with Jesus, they beckoned to their partners. They were on the shore, and they were getting ready to turn in for the day, but, but instead they go back out into the water in the other ship. They could come and help them, and they came, and they filled both of the ships, and they both began to sink. 
That's quite a catch. That's quite a bit of fish. And so that day, Simon Peter had one of the biggest catches of his life. It was totally unexpected, and it was totally unprecedented. This was something that only God could do. This was a miracle. But the question is, why did Jesus perform a miracle such as this? Was it so Peter would have lots of fish to sell down at the marketplace and make some money and pay his bills? No, that's not why. In fact, the Bible tells us that when they got back to shore, they left the catch and followed Jesus. So that's not the reason why. Jesus didn't cause this big catch so that Peter could have bragging rights with his buddies down at the pier or down at the shore. You know, men in fishing and, and their fishing stories, they like to brag. You know, I caught one this big, you know. Guys, you wouldn't believe the catch that I had last week. I mean, my net broke and we filled two ships and we were sinking. It was amazing. I don't think, I don't think that's the reason that Jesus caused the catch to happen the way that it did. Really, we don't have to guess the purpose of this miraculous demonstration because Jesus identifies for us the reason that he performed the miracle. It was to act as a benchmark for what true revival looks like because he says in Luke 5 verse 10, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. Boys, I'm going to make you not fishers of fish. You're going to be fishers of men. So this was not about fish at all. This was about souls. It was about spiritual harvest. And this was to give the disciples a sort of framework and a benchmark of what to expect when the church would one day begin. And so, when the day of Pentecost happened in Acts chapter 2, the first day of the church Peter and the disciples would better understand what Jesus was teaching them that day by that miracle. For it was on that day that there were 3,000 souls added to the church. It's amazing to me to think that a relatively small group of just 120 praying individuals in an upper room could expand to 3,000 souls in just one day on the inception of the church. But I'm sure when they saw this begin to happen and they see people gladly being baptized and God begins to pour out His Spirit in the crowds that day as they come running and they're asking, what meaneth this and, and what must we do? And God begins working. I'm sure that everything started to make sense. It was just like that day back on the Sea of Galilee when the biggest catch of Peter's life took place. This is the type of revival. This is the type of harvest that Jesus can give and wants to give and will give to his church. Because Jesus never intended for his church to hobble along in some anemic state. God intended for it to experience powerful, ex exciting, and inspiring growth all for the glory of God. I believe that today. It wasn't because Peter or any of these fishermen were anything great. They were just normal people. But Peter did do a few things right. He made room in his boat for Jesus. And when Jesus gave him some instruction, Peter humbly, quietly, somewhat reluctantly, 
He listened and he obeyed. Because Peter made some room in his life for Jesus, Jesus did the rest. I'll tell us tonight that this story, it gives us as well, not just the disciples, the framework, the benchmark for a God harvest. God wants to do big things. God wants to do big things. I wonder if I have a witness in the house today. God wants to do big things. Unprecedented things. Unexpected things. And most importantly, things beyond our ability to produce. We can toil and we can try all the night long, but if we'll just make a little bit of room for Jesus, and if we'll follow where his voice leads, I want to tell you tonight that God is able and God is willing and God is desiring to do big things in your life, big things in the city of Fredericton, big things through this local church congregation. That's the God that we serve today. Come on, if you believe that, can you clap your hands for a moment? And just shout big things. I'm believing God for big things. I'm believing God for unprecedented revival in the 21st century. Jesus said, greater works than these shall you do. It's not arrogant and it's not haughty to pray big prayers and to believe God for great things and to ask him for revival in our day. Don't you think for a moment, if you hear your neighbor praying, God, send us revival. God, fill this building. God, make it so we need to build another one. That's not arrogance. And that, that's just boldness. That's just believing God for something great. And I've got the book tonight. And I can stand on the promise of the word of God. And I know we've heard these prophecies before. But allow me to remind you that the glory of this latter house shall be greater than that of the former. The prophet Haggai said that. The prophet Joel, he begins prophesying. And he said, for he hath given you the former rain moderately. And he's going to cause to come down for you the rain. It's coming. But here's how it's going to happen. It's going to be the former rain and the latter rain. And it's going to happen in the first month. And it's going to set you up for a great harvest season. It's going to set you up for a great revival. But I love how the prophet said it. Because we love to get excited about the 3,000 on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. 3,000 souls added in one day. Praise God. And by Acts chapter 4, that number swells to 5,000. But let me tell you tonight that this former rain that the prophet Joel is prophesying about, God said that that kind of outpouring is moderate in his mind. 3,000, 5,000, God said that's moderate. Are you catching the picture here tonight? Are you seeing what God is saying to his church? That's a moderate outpouring. But he said, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. I'm going to cause the rain to fall altogether quickly in the last days. I'm going to do a work in your day. In fact, the prophet Habakkuk said it this way. Behold you among the heathen in regard and wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days which ye will not believe, though it be told you. Even if God were to come down and spell out in great detail and give us the numbers and tell us how it's all going to happen, we would hardly be able to fathom or comprehend the type of work that God 
desires to do in this end time generation. I was preparing today and I remembered the words of a great friend of our church and a minister in our fellowship, Brother Aaron Bounds, and he has been saying this for years, and I agree with my brother tonight that in North America, there are going to be millions of souls that repent of their sins and are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and are filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost speaking in other tongues. Millions in North America. Don't you just believe that it can happen in Ethiopia and somewhere over in the continent of Asia and down in South America? Come on, I believe that in the nation of Canada, in North America, we can see millions turn their life to God and be changed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you believe that, I wish that you'd lift your worship for a moment and say, God, I want to be in the middle of that. God, whatever you want to do in this season, don't do it without me, God. Don't do it without the nation of Canada. Let us be a part of it. Hallelujah. Somebody say, in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. So here's my question. If God desires to do a work like that, are we ready for it? Are we ready for it? Because the greatest hindrance to revival and harvest is not the devil. He does not have enough power to stop what God is doing. The greatest hindrance to revival is not sin, it's not the debauchery of our world, it's not worldliness in general, it's certainly not a reluctance on God's part. I would say that the greatest hindrance to revival is human resistance, or perhaps human indifference. Our flesh is the issue. Human flesh is the issue. I wonder if you ask your neighbor tonight, are you ready for revival? Are you ready for revival? Well, let's talk about it. You know, humans are funny creatures. We're creatures of habit, and we can easily get settled into our way of doing things. But God is a God of the new. Behold, I am doing a new thing, saith God. I was preparing, and this scripture came to mind from Proverbs 14. It says, where no oxen are, the crib is clean. But much increase is by the strength of the ox. And so we're left with this catch-22 because, because the oxen disrupts your clean crib. How many have a clean crib? You know, like your house. You like clean cribs? We all like clean cribs, and the ox disrupts a clean crib, but it also brings great increase. So what do we do? Because progress is messy. Progress is disruptive. Nobody likes a mess. You start having kids, and we're, you know, we like to have a clean house, and we clean up our house, but you, know, you kind of have to give up on that dream for a short season, you know what I mean? Where, where no oxen are, the crib is clean, but much increases by the strength of the ox. I, I was looking up this verse, and there was a cross-reference in Amos chapter 4, verse 6, and the prophet said, this is God uh, speaking, indicting the, the nation of Israel. And he says, and all, I also have given you cleanness of teeth in all of your cities. And that sounds great to me. How many like clean teeth? Praise the Lord. Pastor Jack, nobody likes fuzzy teeth. 
Amen. Okay, so that sounds good, but here's why there's clean teeth. Because there's want of bread in all your places. You've got nothing to eat. That's why you have clean teeth. That's what the prophet said. And yet you have not returned unto me, saith the Lord. And so that's why there's clean teeth. That's why there's pearly whites. Because nobody's got any bread. So I like clean teeth as much as the next guy. But if the pathway to clean teeth is me shriveling in starvation and having no bread, then maybe I should reconsider if, if perfectly clean teeth should be my top priority. I like clean cribs and I like clean teeth too. And within the church, I have preferences. And I like things to be a certain way. And so do you. Some of you don't mind voicing it. <laughs> oh, praise the Lord. I like having things my way, but more than having things my way, I want to see the church make progress. I want to see the church grow. I want to see the kingdom of God advance. But progress is messy. Revival is messy. Because it ruffles our feathers and it challenges our status quo. Revival and harvest brings growth, but growth sometimes bring, bring, uh, brings growing pains. Nobody likes growing pains. Are you ready for revival? Because revival is not always clean cut and it's not always perfectly packaged and it does disrupt our preferences and it makes us extend consideration to others instead of ourselves. And so revival might be a little bit messy, but I've just come to say that I think it's worth it. I think that the harvest is worth the mess. I think that progress is worth having a few oxen in the barn, making a little bit of mess, yes, but we're making progress in advancing. We love to shout and celebrate end time harvest, but the truth is, the more you study the scripture, you recognize that a recurring to resistance to revival like that that kind of revival is us. Everyone say me. It's people who were already close to God, who oftentimes were the most reluctant to see God bring more people into his kingdom. In Matthew chapter 20, here's an example. Jesus gives us a picture of what the kingdom of God is like. And he says, For the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is an householder, which went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. And this is known as the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Sometimes it's called the parable of the 11th hour laborers. The householder is the Lord. And the laborers are those involved in God's kingdom work. That's you and I. The workday begins bright and early. It's 6 o'clock in the morning. And the master of the house hires laborers. And he agrees to pay each of them a penny for their efforts. And then sends them off to work. These are the early adopters, you know. They're joining the workforce earlier than anybody else. Nobody beat them to the punch. So then the master, as you read the parable, he passes through the marketplace three hours later at 9 o'clock, and he sees people that are standing idle. And so what does he do? Well, he brings them in and he puts them to work. That's what he does. And the master sends more laborers into his vineyard. But you'll read the scripture and you'll notice he doesn't guarantee them a specific wage this time. He simply says, whatsoever is right, I will give you. 
And this process repeats, and the master passes through the marketplace at noontime, three in the afternoon, and also at 5 p.m., just one hour before the workday is over. And the Bible will read, pick it up in verse number eight, it says, So when evening was come, the Lord of the vineyard saith unto his steward, Call in the laborers, all of them, bring them in, and let's give them their hire, let's pay them their wage, beginning from the last unto the first. When they came in that were hired about the 11th hour, 5 p.m., just before quitting time, they received every man a penny. And you got to imagine that everybody else that had been hired earlier and had worked longer, they're rubbing their hands and they're getting ready. Oh, yes. Bless God. We're about to be blessed today. We're going to pay the rent today. Praise God. A little left over. But when the first came... They supposed that they should have received more. Those that were hired at 6 in the morning, but they likewise, along with everybody else, received every man a penny. And when they had received it, they murmured against the good men of the house, saying, these last. With a little bit of disdain in their voices, I can only imagine. These last. They've worked but one hour, and you have made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden and heat of the day. See, these first hour early morning laborers were upset at the idea that some Johnny-come-lately would get the same pay as they did. They disparagingly complained against these last workers, those who came into the master's vineyard right before the end. But I love the response of the master. He said, Friend, I do thee no wrong. I didn't wrong you. Did you, uh, didst not thou agree with me for a penny? Didn't you come into my vineyard and didn't you agree to work with me for that rate of pay? We agreed on this. And then I paid everyone the same thing. That's my prerogative to do so. And we see from the parable that regardless of what time you begin working for the master, the pay will be the same for every laborer. It doesn't matter if you've been serving Jesus for 50 years or if you made the decision 50 minutes ago when you came on campus, the pay is the same. If you'll give your life to God and serve Him, you'll get the same reward. Eternity with Jesus in heaven. It's the, it's the same. The pay is the same. And it's not only available for those who have long-term track records of service. You can get in right before the end when the day is winding down and the master is about ready to reward every man for their labor. And it doesn't matter how long you've been in the church. If you commit to serve God, to advance his kingdom, the same award awaits all. Perfect peace and endless joy. No more sorrow or sickness over in glory. That's the reward for our labors. But notice with me, who got the most upset about all this? It was the ones who had served the master the longest. They were the most resistant to the newcomers and upset at the thought that they labored far less but received the same reward. And So I'm addressing that spirit here tonight and I'm saying that I don't want that envious, hateful bitterness to get, a, to get a hold of me or to get a hold of us so close to the end. I don't think I deserve more just because I've been here longer than the next guy. 
I have to be able to celebrate when the master brings another laborer into his vineyard. I have to be able to rejoice when a sinner turns to God in repentance. I don't care that they've been idle all the day long, just standing around doing nothing and just serving their own interests and serving their own flesh. I don't care about any of that. I'm just glad that they're here now. I'm just glad that they're in the vineyard now and serving the master now. And so as God adds to his church in the end of the end times, we have to make sure that we don't become resentful toward new laborers and new converts. Are you ready for revival? In Luke chapter 15, I'll give you another example. Is this okay tonight? Jesus told several parables, and one of which we often call the parable of the prodigal son. Preachers and teachers, including this one, often highlight how this prodigal son arrogantly approaches his father and demands his inheritance right now. What a slap in the face to his father. Essentially, this son was telling his dad that he wished he were dead, which would be the time when the inheritance would normally be given. Dad, I know you're still around, but give me what is owed me today. The father obliges the son, and no doubt in grief, gives the boy his inheritance. And the Bible says, Luke 15, 13, and not many days after, the younger son gathered all together. He took, took the inheritance and he took his goods and his clothes and he packed his bags and he took his journey into a far country. And there he wasted his substance with riotous living. Excess. That's what that word means. To add insult to injury, the son, he deserts his dad and goes off to squander his substance. He blows the whole lot and at the end has nothing to show for it. Famine comes to the land where he is, but the inheritance is gone. He has nothing to show to his name and he is left empty. So he goes out bumming for a job and lands one with a local farmer feeding pigs. He was so desperate and so hungry that even the pig slop looked appetizing to him. But even that was above his pay grade. He wasn't allowed to eat even that. He's famished. He's destitute. He has nothing. But the Bible says when he came to himself, this prodigal son, this wandering child, he said, how many hired servants of my father's have bread enough to spare? And here I am perishing with hunger. So he says, I will arise. And that kind of a turning point, I don't know who might be here in this service tonight or who might be watching this now or later, but that is a turning point that anybody can have regardless of your position and how far away from God you might be. He came to himself and he said, I will arise and I'm going to go to my father. And I'm going to say to my dad, Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned before you. I've come to remind somebody, this is a little bit of a side note, but I think it's worth it tonight that it doesn't matter how far away you've been from God or how long you've been there. You may have made a mess of things, but if you will make up in your mind to get up out of your mess and start making your way to the Father's house, things can turn around for you. And can I tell you, there is no greater decision than you would ever make but to turn, to repent, and to start walking toward God and say, I'm giving my life to him. Maybe I served him once before. Maybe I was in the Father's house before, but it's never too late to come home. So that's what he does. He arose, he came to his father, but when he was yet a great way off, 
We know the story. His father saw him and had compassion. He ran, he fell on his neck, he kissed him. For this my son was dead and he is alive again. He was lost, but now he's found. Now he's back where he belongs. And they began to be merry. I'm here to tell you tonight that if you will take a step toward God, the Father will come running toward you. You don't have to figure out the whole journey. If you'll just start the journey, as your days are, so shall thy strength be. You don't need to figure out how you're going to make it five years from now down the road or ten years from now or even ten days from now. If you'll just start walking today, God will come running to where you are and he'll throw his arms around you. He'll love you back into right standing in his house. Amen. It's a beautiful story, isn't it, of redemption? But really, that's not the whole story. I know we call it the parable of the prodigal son, but I think we're a little bit mistaken because there's more to it than that. In fact, Jesus, he starts the parable not by talking about one son. He said a certain man had two sons. See, there was an elder brother in this story. You would think that this brother would be as excited about the prodigal's return as the father was, but he wasn't. In fact, the Bible says he was angry, and he wouldn't go in. He wouldn't go into the party, and so his dad had to come out to him. He's standing outside, and he entreats him. And this elder brother, he said, Dad, all these many years I served you. I didn't transgress you. At any time you gave the command, I obeyed, Dad. And yet, you never gave me a kid. You never killed a calf for me that I might make merry with my friends. You never threw any parties for me, Dad. But as soon as this thy son, I won't even name him, it's his brother. As soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots and prostitutes, you've killed for him the fatted calf. So I'll say again, I think Scripture bears it out that the greatest resistance to the prodigal coming home was from somebody who was already in the Father's house. The greatest resistance to revival taking place, it was in the house. It's coming from within. It existed in the heart of that elder brother. Resistance came from the one who had been in his house a long time and had never left. He grew up in it. He never turned away. He had remained loyal and faithful. He always did what was asked of him and served his dad. But now he sees his younger brother foolishly, who has foolishly thrown his life away. He's being celebrated. This elder brother allowed an envious, hateful, bitter spirit to get a hold of him. And rather than rejoice that his brother had made his way back home, he felt resentment. Resistance came from within the house. The father was ready. Not just ready with open arms, but ready to run to that young boy, that young son, and help him the rest of the way. Just come home. That was the father's heartbeat and mindset, but not the elder brother. See, the question is, for those that are already in the house, are we ready for revival like that? Can we see people that have backslid and walked away from God, 
and have been waylaid by the winds of false doctrine, can we have that right mindset and spirit that when they start coming back to the Father's house, and when they start coming back and standing on truth, can we see that happen and not get a bad spirit about it? Can we see that happen and have our arms as wide open as the Father's are? Because I promise you, His arms are open, but we can't have our arms folded. And say, well, you left, you walked away, you should have known better. You shouldn't have taken this precious truth and this inheritance and squandered it. You're a fool. I don't want to be like that. I want my arms to be open because I believe it's going to happen. And we've had it prophesied from this pulpit that there are springs of water that exist and have flowed and they're under this city, under the city of Fredericton. And for everybody that's ever wandered, for anybody that's ever squandered, I believe they're coming back. I believe that God, before he returns for his bride, he is going to have a revival of prodigals and we have to be ready. I just feel the Holy Ghost on that point. Can you raise your hands for a moment? And can you just say, God, I'm ready for it. God, help me not to be in the way of when you're going to draw them back in and bring them back into the Father's house. Somebody pray in the Holy Ghost for a moment. Do you believe that it's going to happen? God, make us ready. God, move on our hearts tonight. Give us a deep-rooted love for everybody, every soul, every sinner. But yes, God, even those that have walked away that knew better. In the name of Jesus, I bind that elder brother's spirit. It's not welcome here. God, I pray that love would flow in this house right now in the name of Jesus. Love for our brothers that have wandered. Love for our sisters who have left and walked away. In the name of Jesus, baptize us with a deep love for every soul. Just lift your voice for one more moment. I'm not just interested in finishing my sermon. I'm interested in the move of God tonight. Can we begin to pray right now for everybody that's ever left, for everybody who's ever walked away? Can you just stand in the gap and be a mediator for a moment? Can you stand in the gap, intercessors start interceding, lift your voice, stand on the promise of God, thy, thou shalt be saved and thy house. Come on, I'm believing for it. Spring up, oh well. Break up that fallow ground, God. Come on, if you're believing God for a prodigal, can you stand to your feet right now and can you begin to call their name out to God in prayer in the name of Jesus and upon the authority of your word, God. We're saying, come home. We're speaking, come home to every wayward son and daughter. Oh, hallelujah. 
There's hardly a person seated in this house. Can we lift our faith together? Can we lift our voices together as a church? They're coming home. They're coming home in the name of Jesus. They don't belong to this world. They don't belong in error and false doctrine. In the name of Jesus. Can you turn that prayer of petition into a lifting of praise for a moment? Oh. Come on, shout for the victory. Shout for the victory. Shout like they were shouting with you, standing beside you right now. Because that's faith. When you can shout when you haven't seen it. But I'm shouting because I believe you're working, God. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. Oh, <laughs> In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. 
I'm claiming the promise today, and this verse was just quickened in my mind. And they that shall be of thee shall build the old waste places. Thou shalt raise up the foundations of many generations, and thou shalt be called the repairer of the breach and the restorer of paths to dwell in. God wants to use you that way because God is ready to do it. But are you ready? when God begins to do it. Are you ready for a revival like that? I'm going to ask our music team to come back and you're welcome to remain standing. If you want to be seated, that's fine. But we must make sure that we are not resistant to those who are coming to God. We must make sure that our spirits are right and our arms are open to anyone who wants to serve the Lord. Whether they be an 11th hour laborer, whether they be a returning prodigal, our heart must be the same as God's heart. He is not willing that any should perish. He desires that all should come to repentance. So I say tonight, if anybody should be willing to welcome a new believer into the family of God and embrace, those with, embrace them with love, it should be those who have been welcomed in themselves. Those to whom grace has already been extended should be those most ready to extend grace to others. I want to just leave you with this statement and I'll forego most of the sermon, most of the rest of the sermon. This is a quote directly from our bishop and my father and this is from a message he's preached in this pulpit. But I, and I quote, I hear a lot of Pentecostals today worrying about whether the world will receive our message, fretting about whether they will accept our doctrine or embrace our lifestyle. May I point out that those concerns are never addressed in the book of Acts. The overriding concern in the history of the first century church is not whether they will be open to us, but whether we will be open to them. Whether you're talking about Peter being reluctant and resistant when God sends him to go preach to Cornelius. Whether you're talking about the Judaizers who are trying to push Jewish tradition and the right of circumcision upon the church. Time and time again in the book of Acts, you see that it's not the world that's reluctant to embrace us. It was the church that was reluctant to embrace the new believer. Even the apostles resistant to a young man named Saul of Tarsus who was just trying to get connected. When God begins sending them to that, to us like that, will we be ready to embrace them? Are you really ready for the whosoever will? Are you truly open to the chiefest of sinners? Are you available to build relationships with those unlike you but who are on their way to Jesus? I, I find it, and I think it only fitting tonight, I'll close with one scripture. Matthew 13, 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a fishing net. It was thrown into the water and it caught fish of every kind. Every kind. 
Now here's the, here's the thing, and you read the rest of that little parable, that, that little example, and there's a place for sorting. Jesus said there will be a sorting that takes place, but it's the angels that will do that. And some, and some will be cast into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, Scripture says. Sometimes our problem is we want to do the sorting now. It's not our job. We're called to love. We're called to cast the net and see them come in. That's our job. With arms wide open to receive whatever God would send us and see what God can do with them. So let's not be a wall built. Let's not be a barrier and a boundary erected a source of friction, a hindrance to revival. Because I believe that God does want to and can and will send unprecedented harvests like He did for Peter and that catch of fish. I believe He wants to and I believe that He will. But I want to be ready for it. I want to be ready for it. Here's how I want to end this service. If you would join me at this altar tonight, and I believe as we pray this prayer that God can take care of any bad human spirit that might be in this place, any spirit of bitterness or resistance, God can take care of that. But if you'll come and stand at this altar, and you'll say and you'll pray along with me, God, I'm believing you for revival like that. I wonder if you would step out of your seat right now. Come around this front. Say, God, I don't only believe that it's possible, I'm hungry for it, God. I want it. I want to see that sort of thing happen. I do want to see this sanctuary full. I'm okay with multiple services on a Sunday. That's all right, God. If, you, if that's how you want to do it, I'm open, I'm ready. If you'll send them, God, we'll love them. But God, we're standing on your promise right now and we're just praying, God, send them. Lord, we'll walk in obedience to your voice. Maybe we've toiled all the night long, but nevertheless, at thy word, we will obey. We'll make room in our boat. We'll throw our net on the other side. God, if you'll do the work, we'll be obedient. God, send a revival like that. Lord, we ask for harvest like that. In the name of Jesus. If you would join together, lift your voices now all across this sanctuary in this altar area. If you're back in our, in our pews, that's all right too. Just lift your voices wherever you are. In one voice, in one accord. Can we believe God for revival like that? Can we believe for a harvest like that? Can we believe that, that God's word is true? That he will pour out his spirit upon all flesh? Can we believe that his word is true together? God, I'm believing for a harvest of souls sinners prodigals wanderers God bring them in God even if their lifestyle might make us blush God bring them in and we'll love them bring them in and we'll love them God he